You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. We put together this this really uh, great uh, panel of people, and I'm just let me introduce them real quickly in line. Um, to my right, it's, it's uh, Sandra Astars. And I, I, I tend to say Sandra. I apologize, but Sandra A stars. Um, she's with the chief CEO of the Copyright Alliance. Uh, next, next to her is Jonathan Band. Uh, he's with the Owners' Rights Initiative. Uh, and then we have Professor James Grimmelman. Um, and James is with uh, University of Maryland Law School. Um, he's a professor of law. And Keith Cooperschmidt. Um, with he's the general counsel of the Software and Information Industry Association. Um, and the the topic today is uh, basically. Uh, it's, um, the, the, the idea is that there's a, uh, a right of uh, uh, first sale, and that's been in our, you know, our, our, our law and policy and our norms uh, for many years now. Um, the idea is that um, back in the day when I, when I was younger, I'd have vinyl, vinyl records and, and, or even CDs like this, and I could, I could sell them. You know, right now, the vinyl's back, and people are going to uh, secondhand uh, music stores to buy vinyl records of the auto, audio files. Um, uh, you know they they like those that particular format um, once you own a tangible item uh, the first sale doctrine kind of says that you can you can you can give it to a friend you can you can give it to your, uh, you can sell it you can resell it um, and and there's nothing that the the publisher the copyright owner can kind of do about that same for like uh, movies Ender's Game which is actually really good um, Mario Kart a lot of fun uh, this is a really boring book and I'd probably want to sell it. Um, I don't know if anyone would buy it. Um, and, and so that, that's the idea that you can, you can sell these things, but all of a sudden we're going from these kind of tangible items, these kind of chattels, uh, into the digital realm. So the internet, um, and computers, uh, the internet is the most amazing co- copy machine ever created. It's, it's shocking how good it is at, at transmitting and copying, uh, uh, information. And now, our, our, our entertainment are no longer really on CDs. I mean, they are. You can still buy them, but it's moving inexorably towards uh, digital files. Um, our music downloads, our movie downloads, streaming music, um, ebooks. I got all my all my books on my ebook on my Kindle. Um, I have all my music on my iPod. And 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 what does that mean for this idea that why can't we resell you know the the stuff that's on our iPod? Or why can't we sell the collection that I've amassed over the past you know, 10 years from iTunes? Actually, it's been like more like seven years from iTunes or eight years. Why can't we – should we be able to do that? Um, should that right to resell things or, or give them – or, or the, for the libraries to lend them out? Uh, should, we, should we update that in kind of a, a, a new, new type of um, right that, that doesn't quite exist right now? And going through the legal stuff will be you know, our panel – uh, we're going to try to keep this not legalese or legal jargon, but kind of higher level and kind of talk about the practical impact of what the transfer of our all of our uh, our way of accessing creative expression and music, movie, games on uh, on the Internet. How does that kind of what, – what happens here and what happens going forward? Um, I will say that the, one of the reasons we are looking at this is because other folks are looking at it too. The House Judiciary Committee um, is reviewing um, this issue. They're, they held a hearing in New York on this particular issue um, not a couple weeks ago. Uh, the, the Copyright Office, um, the, the, they have said that they're going to look into reviewing this particular issue, as well as the United States Patent and Trademark Office. So um, we thought it would be good to like just have a conversation and kind of go through it and um, – I guess what I'd ask the professor, uh, J- James Grimmelman, to do is kind of like, you know, how did we kind of get here with regard to um, this right of uh, first sale to actually sell our kind of tangible goods? 
Okay. Hi. So traditionally, copyright has been a copyright. The author of a book has the right to control who makes and sells copies of it. And so that's the way that they get their economic reward, encourages them to write more by making it illegal to print more copies and sell them without the copyright owner's permission. You have to pay them in order to do that. That's how their publisher gets income. That's how they get royalties. That's what keeps the system going. But it was always been understood as a right to control making more copies. Once they put a copy out into circulation, you go to the bookstore and you buy it. Now, that specific copy is your property. And as you can with any other piece of property, a bottle of water, whatever else you own, it's yours to do with as you see fit. You can take it home and read it. You could put it out in the backyard for the birds. You could give it to a friend. You could sell it used. The only thing you can't do is make more copies because that's the owner, one of the owner's exclusive rights. And this boundary is therefore a compromise between the copyright owner's intellectual property rights and the copy owner's personal property rights. The classic case that cemented it in United States laws from 1908, uh, it's going to sound actually very timely. Book publishers were selling books, and they were concerned about a rapacious book discounter that was selling books super cheap to get people into its gigantic store to sell them lots of other things. They were concerned it's going to take over the book selling industry. The year was 1908, and the massive discounter was Macy's. The Bob's Merrill, publisher of a book titled The Castaway, put a notice in the book saying the price of this book is $1 net. It may not be sold for less. We will treat selling it for any less as an infringement of the copyright. Uh, and so they sued Macy's, which was massively discounting books as a way to get them into their everything store. And the Supreme Court held that Macy's, as the owner of the copies it was selling, had the right to sell them free of claims of copyright infringement. The publishers could control the price they sold the copies initially at. If they wanted no copies to be sold, if they wanted to make a dollar for each copy sold, they could sell them to wholesalers for a dollar. But once they had parted with the copy, they couldn't control it further. And so the two key components of that that were in the 1909 Copyright Act and in the 1976 Copyright Act that we're living under today are, first, that this is only a right that applies to the owners of a copy. If I let you borrow a book from me, but you turn around and sell it, you weren't the owner, so you don't have a first sale right to do that. And it only applies to lawfully made copies. If you have a pirate printing press in your basement, you're just running off copies. They are born infringing. You don't have a first sale right to resell them. So the compromise is the copyright owner can control the making of copies and can make its revenue from selling the copy the first time at whatever price they want to sell it for. But after that, they don't control those specific copies. And that was the first sale compromise we lived with for many years, and I think the rest of the panel is going to be about some of the strains this is under in the digital age. 
Okay, so right about now you're thinking, oh my God, I came here for a free lunch, and this guy's talking about a case from 1908. Why am I here? This is what's what's going on here. So my job is to explain why you are here, why this is all why this is all relevant. Um, Tim did a great job of explaining sort of initially why this is relevant. I mean, if you look at a lot of the copyright laws provisions, most of them you go like, oh my God, this is giving me a headache. This is complex, or 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 maybe you have to be a copyright attorney to understand them. For this provision, you really don't, because this provision applies certainly to every day to everyday people. Okay. There, uh, it, it, as, as Tim mentioned, it, it is the provision that allows you when you buy, a, uh, buy when you own, not license, not rent, but when you own a particular object, and, and the objects I brought, I'm considerably older than Tim, I guess, because I bought a cassette tape and, 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 and a VCR tape. So I don't know what this says about me. It says old school. That's what this it says. This is old school. It's a, well, actually, don't copy that floppy, which you can watch on YouTube, a little plug for our very, very old video of flop, about floppy disks. But anyway. Um, so, uh, and it allows you to give it to somebody to throw it away and, and, and do whatever. And that's things that we all do, uh, every day, certainly in the, certainly in the recent past. Um, so let me now, though, get you in my little DeLorean time machine, a little back to the, back to the future reference, and explain why this is relevant today. And the reason it's relevant is because of changes in business models and changes in the type of products that you are buying or licensing. And there are three issues, and I'm going to try to cut them up and di- slice and dice them into, into different slivers so you can better understand sort of what we're going to talk about here on the panel. The first issue is what's called the domestic versus international exhaustion issue. Okay, I'll be very brief on this. It ba- this is the base case issue of uh, does the first sale doctrine apply when works are made in the United States? Um, or does it apply regardless of where the works are made and sold? Okay? This is an issue because it came up in a Supreme Court case back last year, March of 2013, in Kurtzing versus John Wiley. Okay? In that case, the, the person had, uh, books from, that were being shipped, made and sold in Thailand and shipped into the United States where they were sold for a lot less on eBay. We're not talking about that issue here. That's one of the few issues we won't really, I mean, you may hear us get into it a little bit because you, you, you can't ignore the international implications of these issues, but, but basically we're going to try to stay away from that. The other two issues that come up in the context of the first sale uh, defense, and I should clarify, it is a defense to copyright infringement. It is not a right. It's not a right that anybody has. The copyright law grants a distribution right, and the first sale defense is, in, is an exception to that right. So it's not a right. But the, the other two issues are the first one is license versus sale. Okay, so it's called the first sale doctrine. So if you're licensing something, does the first sale doctrine apply? The answer right now clearly is no. There is no doubt about that. The question that comes up, though, is when is a license a license? And when is license really masquerading as a license and is really a sale? Okay, uh, and, and that's the issue that came up. We have decisions in the European Union. Um, I think it was maybe not last year, maybe it was two years ago at this point, um, called the Oracle versus Usoft case, where they said, well, even though Oracle's licensing their software, you can resell that license. We have a completely opposite decision in the Ninth Circuit, actually two decisions in uh, Autodesk versus Werner, Werner versus Autodesk, uh, and uh, Adobe versus Cornrump that just came out last week. Um, and so that came to a, a totally opposite uh, decision, decision. And then the third issue is 
the digital first sale, what we call the digital first sale issue, which is, does the first sale doctrine only apply to tangible copies? Okay, or should it also apply to your digital copies? More and more people are 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 purchasing digital music, digital uh, digital movies. Can you digitally transfer that, similar to what you would have done in the physical world with this very very old VCR tape or this cassette tape? And this came up in the context of a case you may have heard about the Redigi case, having to do with iTunes music. And I know we'll talk about that later, so I won't get into that. So we're going to focus today's panel on digital first sale, which I just mentioned, and then the license first sale, that sort of how that how that butts heads over time. And what we'll do in that context is focus on really one of the reasons why this is significant is the move for, from ownership to licensing. And, uh, and I'll sort of stop there and put a pin in that. We'll revisit that in a moment, but I'll turn things over to Tim or Sandra, whoever's. So uh, I guess I can jump in and give a little bit of a practical uh, impact and maybe – um, stepping in f- from the move to um, license licensing um, as being much more interesting these days than ownership. Um, I think if you look at what consumers are doing uh, currently in the marketplace, innovation is happening in the digital economy more by services that are based on providing access to goods rather than sales of goods. And that's happening all across the board, whether you're talking about entertainment products or whether you're talking about normal, you know, tangible consumer goods. So think about um, the consumer preferences, particularly amongst younger users. Um, Zip cars are really popular. Bike share programs are really popular. Um, People are turning to gifting and acquiring experiences rather than tangible goods. All these sorts of things in the physical world are also happening in the online world with con- with consumers and how they engage with entertainment products. Rather than um, being interested in acquiring all of those uh, tangible products um, in, in the real world, consumers are much more interested in acquiring digital products. And not only that, they're demonstrating a preference for acquiring um, subscriptions to streaming services rather than downloads. Um, and downloads, I think, are much more equivalent um, in feel in the digital world to these tangible products um, than license-based products. So, you know, what does all of that mean? Why do people do this? The benefits, um, at least to me, are obvious. You're not buying rights that you don't need or want. You're not paying for things that you're not going to use. Um, you are... Um, engaging with the offerer in figuring out what exactly it is that that you're going to uh, end up getting um, from that deal, um, and you're not taking on responsibilities for um, you know physical objects that you're not going to want to you know maintain over time and and use over time. Um, in the creative sector um, with entertainment products, it's led to much more innovative services, much more interesting ways to engage with products. Um, there are also very um, kind of longstanding practices that have existed in the creative world um, that have always been license-based. And that's a very important thing to keep in mind, um, particularly uh, it's been true in the software world, but um, I, I'll talk just for a couple of minutes about the visual arts world. Um, 
photographers and graphic artists and illustrators almost always deal with uh, their clients on a licensing uh, basis rather than a sales basis. And so some of the proposals that um, you hear in uh, the context of a discussion of digital first sale doctrine um, suggest that if something uh, looks like a sale and is deemed a license, we should treat it like a sale nevertheless. And so you'll hear people say, well, if it's a, uh, if it's a transaction that's a one-time transaction, there's no follow-up service from the licensor and there's a single set price for it, we're going to call that a sale, not a license. Um, but let me give you a, a example of where that happens all the time and nobody actually thinks that they're buying the good. Stock image licensing. Um, Getty Images, Corbis, and hundreds of other small stock image licensors exist across the country. These entities do online licensing all day long. They serve a diverse array of businesses from individual bloggers who are totally non-commercial to Fortune 500 companies, and they have to be super flexible in how they deal with them. They have to be able to offer a variety of, of license models to serve that vast array of businesses, and they have to be able to negotiate those licenses online um, in a matter of seconds because Getty, for instance, is licensing uh, 30,000, uh, sorry, 300,000 images a day, which equates to more than, uh, two images per second. So if you're doing that sort of volume transaction, you're not going to be having individual, um, individual negotiations online with uh, a person. Um, regardless, I think n nobody has ever had a, uh, thought as a consumer engaging with Getty to get an image to use on their blog or to use on their website that they're buying an image that they're going to have a right to then resell um, or license to others in competition with Getty or in competition with the photographer who took it. But that's the absurd effect that some of these uh, proposals would ultimately have. Right. So, so the the expectation is that you're an iStock photo, and, and you you, you want to use it for your web page or something, and you 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 license it for that purpose, and you, you're just not going to you know print them out and like um, sell copies of the of the of the actual physical um, paper um, picture you know on the street. You, you, people understand that. I guess the question is the practical effect is. Um, so when I on iTunes when I download a song for a dollar twenty nine, you know, did I buy that? And it said buy, right? Um, Amazon MP3s, Amazon uh, audio on demand. I, I, it says buy, and I, I buy it. I, um, I have a bunch of things on FiOS um, that I've bought, like Frozen, that movie Frozen. It said buy, and it was like thirty dollars or something, and I bought it. Um, and then, you know, can you give, go through some other examples of like what, what right now what we're dealing with? And is that a, am I buying that? Is that a, is that a license? But if I buy it, I, what rights do I have in it? Right. So I guess I would, I would say you can always come up with examples of things where in a given consumer offering, I might want a different consumer offering or something that, you know, to me seems better. So, you know, when I started first reading, the New York Times on my iPad, I was frustrated. My husband and I had one iPad between us. And so we used to sit around on a Sunday morning and share sections of the New York Times. And, you know, we didn't have to buy two newspapers and we shared it back and forth. And all of a sudden we couldn't do that anymore. 
But, you know, ultimately, we decided that the better consumer option for us was actually the digital version that we were getting because it also meant that on a snowy morning when we're sitting, uh, you know, snowed in, nobody had to get up and, like, trek to the store to get the New York Times. And, you know, when we were traveling, we'd get the New York Times wherever we were without having to, you know, go out for a visit to, you know, the... Um, international newsstand and that sort of thing. And so we rationalized, yes, there's a bunch of things we didn't like about this offering, but there were more things that we liked about it, and so it was worth it to us. I think the same thing is true for issues like the right to resell, the right to inherit. When I'm engaging in a 99-cent online transaction to purchase an iTunes file, I'm not thinking about, am I going to be able to pass this file on to my heirs? I mean, I think it is a legitimate question to raise, but honestly, I don't think that's how consumers are voting. And when you, you know, vote with your pocketbook with services that consumers are expressing, you know, a a affection for um, and support of, I think that's how you, you know, really demonstrate whether people, you know, like those services uh, or or don't like them. And services that do a good job and satisfying consumer demand will survive. And those who don't won't or they'll have to, you know, change their business models. I mean, I do think, you know, businesses need to do a good job in disclosing what people are getting. Um, but I don't think the copyright law is the place where you should make those uh, requirements. There are, you know, consumer protection laws and other laws that can be brought into play um, rather than the copyright laws. So as the Internet um, has is, is transforming everything and disrupting all of these uh, notions of um, how we've done things in the past, um, and as we go from tangible items to kind of digitized items and, and the concept of ownership is changing, what's the problem? It looks like um, people are getting licenses instead of sales, and um, why should why, where is this all going, and why should, should there be a problem? James, uh, Jonathan, maybe you can weigh in on this one. Sure. So, uh, uh, thanks for the question, Tim. So, <clears throat> I, I guess there's there's a the problem comes in several different ways. One is that um, uh, a lot of consumers really do think that they are buying these objects. I mean, as you mentioned, when you're clicking on on iTunes, you you think you're buying. It says buy now, and so did I actually did I buy it? Well. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, because, because I don't know. chances are that, uh, you know, that, that, that there's all this fine print that says you really didn't buy the copy, that you're, you know, that you just uh, leased the copy. And so, um, you know, and this gets to Sandra's point, and I think uh, at, the, at the hearing uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was a professor from UCLA who was, you know, his, his point really was very much that, uh, uh, the, the, the disclosures need to be a lot clearer and a lot simpler for users. I mean, certainly when you, you know, when you, when you rent the zip car, you know you're not buying the car, right? I mean, you know you're just renting it. And, and that, that's very clear. Um, but when you, when it says buy now and you think you're buying it, you know, so there is a definite consumer expectation issue that comes into play. Um, and, and I imagine that there's a lot of you who have, Bought quite a, you know, bought quite a lot of digital media and you think you own it, but then you might be getting less than what you think for. And, and part of it also is a pricing issue, meaning certainly, you know, when you rent the zip car for an hour, you, you don't pay, 
you know, you're only paying, you know, whatever it is, $10, $20, whatever it is, a relatively small amount, uh, a price that reflects that you're just renting it. But uh, a lot of the pricing issues that we see, uh, the pricing models, you're paying a lot of money. You're certainly paying as much money as you, you know, that you would think. And this this happens, has, has been happening in the textbook context, um, where, you know, the price that's charged you know, it was a couple hundred dollars. So you think that you know, the consumer expectation is given that pricing that you are buying something and then you might turn around and find out that you haven't. So that, that's, you know, there is a whole consumer expectation issue that, that is a function of the labeling and the pricing that I think needs to be dealt with. Now whether, how it's dealt with, you know, I don't know. I mean, whether, whether it, it, it needs to be, uh, uh, consumer protection law or copyright law, whatever. I mean, there is an issue here that that definitely needs to be dealt with. But, but so the, also- then, the I guess what you're saying is that the, when it is a license or you're buying it, and the the fine print or the print is kind of the end user li- end, end user license agreement, right? Right. That, that ends up being a, a you know very one sided, very unfair to the consumer. Uh, I mean, I think that there is an issue that needs to be. Dealt with, and again, exactly how it's dealt with or where it's dealt with, uh, you know, m- you know, my, my coalition is not sure about, but we know that there is, you know, there is a problem here that needs to be addressed. There's a related problem that's maybe narrower, because as you can see, you know, this digital first sale issue is kind of a, a big issue with a lot of, you know, consumers on one side and technology companies that want to offer these services, and, and then you have rights holders that you know, want to, you know, maintain control. You know, th- there's a narrower issue that, that my group is focusing on that I just want to raise and we can talk more about it later. Um, and, and that's that, that you have often, uh, hardware products. And so I look, I see a lot of you have laptops. Uh, but within the hardware products, you have software, you know, so that's digital. And certainly you expect that when you, uh, buy, let's say a computer, that has an operating system in it, that you should be able to dispose of that computer or sell that computer. Uh, the problem that in some cases, some manufacturers are saying, okay, well, you own the hardware, but you don't own the software that's essential to its operation. And so you're allowed to transfer the hardware, but you're not allowed to transfer the software, your first sale right because you're not the owner of the software, you're only the owner of the hardware, they're saying you don't have the first sale right to transfer the hardware. Um, and then that is a problem for you if you want to sell it. It's a problem for the purchaser on the other end. They buy it, and then they're saying, well, that you know, they don't get the, 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 the security patches, uh, the bug fixes, because the the, vend- the, the, the manufacturer is saying, oh, you don't own that piece so, of software. So, so maybe maybe we can come back to that, that essential software thing, but I think what you're talking about is like devices like um, a Nest um, ther- uh, thermostat or a Nest um, um, smoke detector. Anybody have one of these in their homes? They're so awesome. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're, they're really technologically advanced and they have software inside of them. And what you're saying is I could, I, it, this is still in the wrapping, so I could sell it to any one of you that I, you all want them now, right? I could sell it to any one of you, but the question is, and I'm, this is not specifically to Nest, but do you get software updates that come with this device? 
Right. I mean, that's, that's the, that, that is the question you're raising. That that is right. It, okay. It's, it's it's a you know it's whether you whether you in fact that I'll have the right to sell that. I mean, it, you know, you have the right to sell the device, but do you have the right to sell the software if they say that you only license the software? So it's a it's a transfer issue, and it's also an updates issue. I mean, so it's right. but but that's a much narrower issue, of course, than this whole big, you know something that deals with, you know, all the digital stuff, you know, yeah. and do you have the right to to transfer uh, all of these digital products that you are maybe not the owner of, just but the licensee of? Let me, let me jump in with concrete points about two of the issues that have come up. One of them is that as more and more things have intelligence in them, like that nest, the markets that let people share physical goods actually depend upon first sale. Cars have software in them. So if you said that the software in a car is licensed, not sold, and you never own it, then copyright owners could use first sale to restrict the distribution of cars, and Zipcar couldn't operate without the permission of every auto manufacturer whose cars it's renting. So that's a place in which first sale keeps markets for physical goods clear of copyright claims. The other thing I'd point out is that when we talk about buying, the right to transfer things to other people is one part of the bundle that consumers care about, but it also is a kind of permanence that they care about. The fine print on a license for Frozen when you bought that online probably says that they can take it away at any point if they need to shut down the platform or if for whatever reason they decide to restrict your access to it in which case you find that the movie you bought has vanished. The Federal Trade Commission investigated a number of companies that shut down the platforms that provided access to their media and sort of closed those all investigations with letters saying this could be a deceptive practice if you said the consumers bought it but you kept it on a string so you could yank it back at any point after they paid their money. That's not the same thing as the consumer having a right to resell. And we might care about the good not being yanked away from them more than we care about their right to go to a used digital goods store and sell it there. But it's part of what people care about when they buy. I think one of the reasons that streaming services like Spotify feel fair to people is that they understand when you stop paying the monthly fee, your access stops. They understand that this is an exchange that lasts for a certain amount of time, you're paying for access during that time, and they're very clear on what the terms of that are. The expectations around buying digital goods aren't as clear, and I think a lot of the struggles right now are to try and figure out and explain clearly to consumers exactly what is and what is not included. So, so, if I could, um, oh, go ahead. Gotcha. so, so uh, I think you've, we've hit upon a point here that I think we generally agree with, which is that there is a certain level of consumer confusion at this point. And I think that's due in large part to the fact that, boy, are things moving fast. Business models are changing very rapidly. I know our members and I know other you know uh, uh, companies that are in the movie industry and the music industry and video game industry are all trying to create new business models to get their copyrighted products to the consumers in a way that they can get any content, anytime, anywhere, in any format or language. That gives consumers more choice, more convenience, more opportunity to experiment with things. Um, 
But because of that, because of this dramatic change that's going on right now, things are moving from analog to digital, from digital sort of that you that you purchase to in the cloud being licensed. Things are changing significantly. Consumers are sort of being sort of dragged along, and and there is a certain level of consumer confusion. And we could stop at a point here and say, okay, here's how we should define this, but then we might get stuck. If we did that years ago, we might get stuck with these things, okay? And we don't want to do that, okay? We want to take advantage of new technologies and new business models. And so that can give these consumers more convenience, more choice, okay, uh, to, to access these copyrighted works. Uh, there was a story I just heard the other day with one of the CEOs of our member companies uh, said a software company was was talking and said the future of software is DOS, and everyone looked and well, what are you what are you talking about? It's making sense not not for disk operating system, but don't own stuff. Okay, that's where everything is going. Okay, in the future, I mean, there's tons of literature written, uh, articles written about this. Consumers may own certain essential things. They may you, the things that they use very often. They may own, but things that they only use on occasion. Okay, which a lot of what we're talking about falls into that category, I think. But also things like fancy shoes, ju- most jewelry, that, uh, that that pizza making set that you have, um, those type of things will be licensed in the future, if not already. You, uh, Sandra mentioned uh, zip cars. Go go online, look at Rent a Runway, where you can rent a, a ball gown. Now there's even the peer-to-peer. Uh, sort of licensing models out there where the stuff that you all own, you can now rent to other people. Go look at tool spinners where people rent lawn mowers and tools, snap goods where you, they rent other electronics. What I'm trying to get at here is there is a, a dramatic shift in the ecosystem. Things people are moving from ownership to, li- I mean, the businesses and people are moving from ownership to licensing. Okay, and that's not just in the world of copyright. That's across the board. And to the extent there is consumer confusion in that in this area, it is it is it is it is across the board too. So it makes no sense to go and muck with the first sale doctrine. So to to do something to change it so it applies to licensing when this is an issue more about consumer education and and consumers getting more knowledgeable and obviously businesses and government helping them get more knowledgeable it makes no sense to muck with first sale doctrine this is a much bigger issue than that and um, i was just going to address a couple of uh, uh, additional points in terms of why some goods might be better to license digitally um, than to you know buy digitally and I, I suspect that when you you know get uh, a file from iTunes, you're actually getting a license. And why are you getting a license rather than a sale? Because you have the right to get it on five or six different devices and access it rather than just on that one, uh, you know, just one copy. Um, you've got the ability to call up iTunes when your computer crashes and you lose access to it and get it, um, you know, reloaded. Um, you've got the ability to you know, get uh, some troubleshooting help from them in various uh, instances, and that's all managed by a license agreement. So you've made that decision that those sorts of abilities and interactions as a consumer are valuable to you by using iTunes. Maybe So, you know, maybe the the ability to resell the file is something, you know, that's of interest. That can also be managed through a license agreement as well. If there is sufficient consumer demand and consumers you know, make the 
uh, case that they're willing to pay a premium to have a file that can be, uh, you know, resold. Um, I'm sure somebody can come up with a business model that uh, that yeah. encompasses that. And, and this is all playing out as we speak. We had a conference call just the other day to kind of go over, like, well, what, what topics should we cover? Um, and the question, like, Apple just bought Beats, Dr. Dre's Beats, and, and part of the reason, they say, is that um, they have a streaming service um, that uh, Apple wanted to move from uh, downloading songs to more streaming, and, and and so that that was a clear indication that we're moving to like a licensing regime. Um, and as we were on the call, literally Amazon uh, announced that their music service would go from uh, they'd launch a streaming service as opposed to downloads um, that they have right now. Um, so this is all playing out. And you're you're you and Keith are suggesting that. Um, people, people want, they don't want to own stuff and they would just want to have licensed. But there's kind of a, my question, my thing was when I, I started accumulating an iTunes, uh, library, um, of music was I wanted to own it. Um, I wanted to own it. I want to be in the possession of it and I wanted to put it on my hard drive. Like, so it's like in my hard drive here. Um, and I wanted to keep it and I want to have the files and be able to access them and see them and, and, and. And that was my decision. And at the time, there was Rhapsody. I think it's owned by Yahoo now. It's actually a great streaming service, really good stuff. Um, you could you could um, build, like, all your different playlists. It was, it's really awesome, but it's like a monthly fee. And um, and I decided, nah, I, I kind of want to own that stuff, right? Um, but that was my decision. And and, and so if I if I may, the uh, – you know, this is getting back to sort of what Keith was saying, but also what, you know, Tim and Sandra, what you're all saying is that – uh, yes, there are uh, many options available to consumers, and that's a good thing, uh, and, and more consumer options are always a good thing. But, uh, you know, we shouldn't forget that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the world is going to remain very tangible, and there's a lot to be said for ownership and, and the principles of ownership uh, that, that Tim's alluding to. Um, and, and also, we shouldn't think for a second that, you know, even though we're talking about, oh, all these wonderful choices to consumers, a lot of these choices maybe in the short run are cheaper for consumers, but in the long run will be a lot more expensive for consumers, right? And so, you know, everyone, you know, it's good for people to have choices and to have options, but they really should have an option, meaning there should be an option. Do you buy it or do you rent it? And and so, like, you know, there's that article, there's an article in the paper the, the other day about, you know, the perennial issue that I'm sure a lot of you – uh, who are younger in the audience, you know, are thinking, do, do I buy an apartment or buy a condo or do I rent an apartment? And there's all these trade-offs and, you know, uh, it, it's different for everyone. Uh, and, and does it make financial sense? And then it's also the, the sense of, you know, the, the, the pride of ownership and all the rest that goes with it. I mean, certainly, uh, for, for another one of my clients, uh, uh, library associations, I mean, they're, Moving into this world of, of ebooks and, and you have to often, the, the library that is lending the ebooks, I mean, they, they get that on a license basis for, from the publisher. Believe me, those have, are a lot more expensive. It's a lot more expensive over time for the library to license, uh, the, the ebook from the publisher than to just buy a copy. Um, you know, and that's that's the world. You know, there's a reason why uh, uh, vendors are very excited about this licensing model because they have figured out that over time they're going to make more money. So that's not to say that's a bad thing, but we just need to be going into this with our eyes open and make sure that uh, consumers a have the choice 
uh, and B, know what they're getting into. Uh, and, and again, certainly if they think they're buying something, they should have you know, the ownership rights that go with that. So uh, I'm not sure, actually, that consumers are paying more in a licensing model uh, now than they are in a uh, ownership model. Um, going back to my New York Times on the iPad example, um, when I subscribed to the New York Times living in New York City, you know, whatever, seven years, four or five years ago, um, and I got it delivered to my doorstep and I traveled for business a lot, it would still be delivered to my doorstep. I would buy it a second time when I was in Los Angeles or wherever I was, and I'd probably pay $7 for it there because it was in Los Angeles, and I'd get a lesser copy because it was the regional copy rather than the New York Metro copy. Um, and so I've paid for it for it twice. When I get it on my iPad, I have the copy that is the same copy nationwide. I get it wherever I go, and I have access to it, you know, without having to uh, you know, pile up copies at my doorstep. I think it's a much better consumer proposition, and it's actually cheaper for me than um, than what it was before. And I think you find that with a, a lot of other offerings that are in the marketplace. If consumers aren't getting a better deal, they're not going to um, take the offer that they're being made. Um, the, I mean, the bottom line is, you know, there may be offers that I would want to get or you would want to get, and the marketplace will accommodate to what consumers what consumers tell the marketplace. So, rewriting the copyright law to force uh, by dint of what Congress thinks the consumers okay. should get uh, is not the way to accomplish it. We shouldn't be um, rewriting the first sale doctrine to force the internet to act like the analog world. So, let me ask you a question to the panel. Um, this is um, I have an iPod here. It's like an for one of the first generation iPods and it's packed with like Van Halen's greatest hits and a lot of other greatest eighties greatest hits. Um, I can sell, I can sell my iPod. It's not worth the hardware is not worth that much, but you know, for Van Halen fans, I mean, it might be worth quite a bit. Um, can I sell this in my songs on it on, on, you know, on eBay or like to someone in the audience here? Can I legally sell this iPod lawfully? I, I mean, I, I, I do not have the ability, or, or uh, I don't speak on behalf of the music industry, so I, I, I will speak on behalf of who I represent, which are software companies, and if you had software... Let's assume, let's assume that I bought these MP3s that I downloaded and bought legally from iTunes were actually, I bought them, and yeah. they're, you know, they're in, in, MP3 in, files. In the software world, if you were to purchase uh, a license to use the software and install that on your hard drive. The, li the license, obviously it depends from license to license. From, from com Each company has different types of licenses. But as a general matter, uh, you can transfer that software to somebody else, but you have to go through different procedures to do that, okay? Now, you know, you will have to contact the, the software company. So, for instance, they're not feeding the updates to the person who sold you the the hardware with the software loaded on it or something like that. So th th there are these procedures that you need to go through, but not all software is transferable, and for good reason. And I'll give an example, which is academic software. Academic software is software that is sold, is sold the license is sold to teachers uh, and to students and, and other people in academia. Um, and this is fully functioning software. So the only thing that's different about it is the fact that there is a license that controls the, re the, the, the transfer of that software and the fact that that license also says you can't use it for commercial purposes. 
And in turn, that software is sold for a dramatically reduced price so that students and teachers can afford it, okay, and afford to use it. So th- there are restrictions on transfer, but they're not holy. It doesn't say you can't transfer it at all. It just see- says if you're going to transfer it, you have to transfer that software to other students and other teachers. I think that's totally legitimate. Now, let's say we all of a sudden muck up the for sale doctrine and we change that so that, that license, those license terms are no longer enforceable. What's going to happen is students are going to turn into big business makers. They're going to buy that software, and then what they're going to do is they're going to resell it okay, at a, and, and make a profit. Okay, What's going to happen is software companies are going to stop offering uh, academic software. So, and so that's, that's not it, a good thing. So that's the software industry's risk. Yeah, a student, a student, co- a student e, uh, textbook on electronic, uh, textbook, you buy, you buy it, it, it usually costs $30, um, but for students it's only like 10. Mm-hmm. Um, they download it, they download it and immediately resell it for 25, uh, like immediately. Is mm-hmm. that what you're, that's the absurd result you're saying? Yeah, I mean, it, it, textbooks is really an interesting case because you've got all these different models. You can certainly go out and buy the print copy of a textbook, but talk about an industry that is dramatically and rapidly changing. You've got these new e-textbooks where uh, they come with tons of special features, things like embedded quizzes, dictionaries, glossaries, uh, fla- electronic flashcards, highlighter, markup options. I could go on, okay? And there's tons of these new features, and it allows teachers to, teachers to do things like monitor the student's progress, making sure they're understanding the material, develop these personalized plans. There's some wonderful things going on in the e-textbook industry, okay? But because these are really personalized textbooks at this point, they really shouldn't be transferable. And they license these textbooks. But and there's a lot more money that goes into making those textbooks, too. I have a few other questions and a few other things we want to get to. But let me um, just uh, – I know that some people have some questions. I know Rob Pagararo is in the off, uh, audience, and he always has a question or two. Um, so uh, uh, question from the front uh, question from the front row. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to get your reactions to um, how WIPO has dealt with But by creating the umbrella solution where you have a make, an interactive making available right and communication with the public right, um, it does not um, permit in any way exhaustion of rights in the online space. So um, anyway, that, it's not really a question about your reactions to that. WIPO has essentially already dealt with this um, and one other issue on software. Yeah, in the in the larger context of um, what what the WIPO is doing and international um, uh, developments on 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 copyrighted works and things like that, it, you, in in the copyright space, it, what what other jurisdictions do is actually pretty relevant. So sometimes um, we change the Congress changes our copyright laws to harmonize with um, uh, other countries, and and so globally we're on the same page. Um, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act was kind of done because there were some treaties that we wanted to sign, and we wanted to make sure that we were on the same page. So there's a harmonization effect. So it, it, what other countries do is not um, unrelated to how we would approach things going forward. Is that so? Well, having I, I would just say that that uh, uh, Congress would be very surprised if they were to learn that the WIPO Copyright Treaty foreclosed its ability to consider this issue, um, and and uh, certainly um, that was uh, when when uh, the the U.S. negotiators came back and and urged uh, 
the U.S. to, you know, to sign and ratify the treaty, they did not indicate that there would be uh, a foreclosure of dealing with these kinds of issues. So... Yeah, I mean, I think you're going back to what does the right apply to? Does it apply to the reproduction right? Um, and if you're making a reproduction of a work, should that be excluded? And that's been the case from the very beginning in Bob's Merrill. The Supreme Court said, no, you can't make reproductions of works. The Supreme Court looked at, you know, what is the motivation of the author? Is the author getting the value of the work that it has put out in the marketplace or is it being, you know, put in competition by, um, you know, other works being reproduced and sold in competition with it. And so reproduction was not, you know, permissible under the first sale doctrine. Um, when the uh, issue was looked at again in 1976 when Congress updated uh, the copyright laws the last time, the first sale doctrine was not a particularly discussed issue. Um, and in fact, the only place where it came up was when the display right was added for copyright owners. And it came up in that context um, as a uh, need to limit the dis- uh, the first sale doctrine to make sure that um, it did not impact the uh, rights owner's ability to uh, use its traditional uh, reproduction and distribution uh, rights as technology evolved. Um, so it, it's not been a topic that's been considered really from any perspective, at least in Congress, other than is the copyright owner getting the the benefit that it was intended to get under the copyright laws under you know the um, the you know constitutional um, you know directive to uh, uh, empower authors to create and disseminate works um, I think if you look at what's you know happening now in all of these discussions um, around digital uh, uh, for sale doctrine, you've had the Copyright Office look at the issue in a very comprehensive report and conclude that it would be, um, you know, unproductive uh, and, you know, dangerous to various um, digital uh, models that are developing. Um, and I think that's consistent with, you know, what you're suggesting, WIPO, um, has also concluded. So uh, we have um, like eight minutes left. Um, any other questions in the front row? Oh, and then Rob, maybe you can Rob can tell me whether I can sell my iPod or not. If you're spending $130 for a legal textbook, you are getting an incredible bargain. Uh, the prices have pushed past $200 for a copy, uh, and our the student could spend $1,000 for textbooks a semester. This is a major contributor to the cost of legal education. 
the publishers have been letting it be known quite clearly that they actually really resent the pressure that first sale puts on their business models because if a student is tr- has the choice of paying $225 for a new book or $50 for a book with somebody else's highlighting in it, they're going to go to the used market. And so the publishers have been very aggressive in trying to push digital copies as an alternative. And what we've seen in the marketplace is that students have largely resisted buying digital books because paying $180 for the digital version just doesn't include the bells and whistles don't justify that $130 markup over the used copy. So they're making quite aggressive pushes to take away the physical option. One case book publisher is now pushing students hard to take a version, which they get a book. They have to return at the end of the semester to be pulped. That's how aggressive they are about trying to dry up the market for used copies. And this is one of the reasons why they're embracing digital distribution. No used copies to compete with the new ones to hold the prices down. Right. And what makes it worse, of course, is, is like it's not like the student really has a choice. I mean, if, if this casebook is assigned, they have to get that casebook. They might be able to get away with an earlier edition of the casebook and then hope that they're not missing too much content. But it's not it really doesn't work to say, you know, you, you don't have a normal competitive environment where you can, where the student, the consumer, really has a choice to say, okay, I'm not going to buy that casebook at all, or I'm going to, you know, buy someone else's casebook, right? Because this is what's assigned. Um, and, and so th- that's why, you know, at le- you, you will find in various markets the whole consumer choice and the normal market, market forces fall apart. It's, it's interesting. I mean, this is the sort of the Washington, D.C. spin machine. How do, how do we make it look like, even though we're trying to give the students and consumers what they want, we want to be stuck with, you know, cassette tapes and, and, and VCR tapes. Um, and, yeah, the, the option is there is still to get the, the print text, and it will be there. But these new d- digital texts, I have different numbers than James here, apparently, so uh, I guess we won't go into that. But but um, th- these new e-textbooks e- um, are oftentimes, um, almost always, dramatically reducing the cost that the students are paying. And, like I said, you cannot ignore the, all these bells and whistles, which are beneficial to not only students, but also the universities and the teachers as well. I know that I know Sandra wanted to make a comment, but I think I have one time for one more question. I promise you guys I'd get, out, get you out by one. Rob, did you have a question back there? Well, well I, I, I think it, it really, you know, the answer, the typical lawyerly answer, it depends. You know, so I think I, I, I wouldn't be surprised that in most, you know, over time in the long run, the market works usually, right? And so, uh, so I wouldn't be surprised for most apps. I mean, you have a, you know, competitive environment, you know, and it's good to have the competition between, you know, between, uh, you know, the Android world and the iPhone world. I mean, all the, the more competition you have, the better, and the more consumer, ch- you know, th- that, that will drive consumer choice. But you need to make sure that consumers know what they're getting, and that gets to the labeling issue we were talking about before. Are you really buying it? Are you? And then also, what do you do when you don't really have a competitive market, uh, like 
you know, like with uh, with case books uh, where you're where you're stuck, or you know the the example I was giving before, where you have a lot of sunk costs. So where you have you know you've already bought a computer, right? You've spent you know several thousand, or, or and it's even worse. Let's say if you have a server, right? You're a company. You've invested several thousand, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars in a server, and then you have software that's embedded in that, and you want to tra- you know then you do. You know, the, the competitive market sometimes doesn't work in your specific situation, and, and, and you do have a market failure. If anybody has a, a Yeah, I, 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 and we don't have enough time to address the, everything that you said. I mean, there is a provision in the Copyright Act that allows the, 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 the transfer of the software and the hard drive if, if the software cannot be copied. But there, there are other issues there that we'll get into at some, some other time. And, and I, wish, I wish I had more time to... to Oh, 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 so okay. Oh, is it a comment or a question? Quick question. Quick comment. No, no. Let me just let me just. I I I did I did promise. <laughs> um, I I did promise you guys I'd get them out at one o'clock. The last question I would have, I think we you've kind of touched on the answer on this for, during your comments, but um, I got this question via email before I came. Was um, you, should we have this this kind of digital first sale um, idea? And if so, what should Congress do about it, or should they not do anything about it? And that was the question that I got. Um, and I'd like to just finish on that, if, if you guys could just weigh in really quickly on that. Yeah, I'll start off and just say, I don't, the, as I think evidenced by my comments today, there is nothing that should uh, Congress should do at all for the digital first sale doctrine. If there's something that Congress should do, it should look at the Kurtzing case and, and fix uh, Section 602, but we'll talk about that okay. some other time. And I would say that, that the Kurtzing rule came out just right, and that's the last thing Congress should do. <laughs> <laughs> right, and I, I mean, I said it during the comments, the, the options that consumers have today under licensing models, whether they're brand new ones or models that have existed over time in industries like the visual arts are unprecedented, and we shouldn't be sacrificing those by trying to make the Internet act like the analog world. Okay. James? And Congress should make sure that first sale in physical goods remains and protect consumer expectations for virtual goods. So um, I have um, – so anybody after the event, anybody wants to see me to buy a Nest uh, thermostat, <laughs> um, a really boring book on lobbying, and I have to get a legal opinion on whether I can sell my iPod. Um, uh, you can see me afterwards. I want to thank this great panel and thank the Congressional Internet Caucus co-chairs for ho- supporting us. Thanks very much, folks. Thank you.